The great economist John Maynard Keynes once wrote of the foolish things a man thinking alone can come temporarily to believe. Fortunately, I did not have to think alone. And neither do we. Welcome to Cetris Never Paribus, the History of Economic Thought podcast, where all other things are never equal. Welcome to a new episode of Cetris Never Paribus, the History of Economic Thought podcast. I'm Reinhard Schumacher and I'm joined by second host today, Irvin Decker. Hi, Irvin. Good morning. Our guest for this episode is the historian Ola Inset. Ola was just awarded the Joseph Dorfman Best Dissertation Prize for 2019 by the History of Economic Society for his PhD thesis, Reinventing Liberalism, Early Neoliberalism in, the con in Context, 1920 to 1947, which he submitted already in 2017 at the Department of History and Civilization of the European University Institute in Florence, Italy. We are very happy to talk with Ola today about the development of early neoliberalism. Ola, welcome to Ceteris Never Paribus. Thank you very much, Reinhard and Erwin. It's very nice to be here. Thank you for inviting me. The first question was from you, Erwin. Please go ahead. Yeah, Ola, we read uh, your thesis with enormous pleasure, and we were struck by the fact that right from the start, you suggest that you're going to do um, intellectual history rather than a mere history of economics. And that intrigued us very much. Could you um, explain what the difference is to you? Well, I suppose uh, history of economics and intellectual history could uh, could be the same thing. It doesn't. We don't have to um, we don't have to exaggerate how different it is. But but in a sense, I think that history of economics is very often done by economists, and that it comes from within the discipline of economics with the more or less explicit aim to use the history of economics to improve economics as a discipline. And that's not necessarily the approach of intellectual history, though, of course, you could potentially use intellectual history to improve economics as well, by all means. But as since I'm, I'm not an economist, and perhaps that's sort of um, almost insulting to economists that someone who is not an economist would go and study economists and see what they think and do. But uh, since econ economics is a special field in that it's so uh, technical and requires so much practice and so much so much work to be able to sort of uh, manage to be in the discipline, it's hard to come from the outside and try to say something about it. But it's easier definitely when it comes to the period uh, that I've studied in the interwar years before the increasing uh, mathematization, uh, I would say. Um, uh, but so as an intellectual historian, you come in more and you say, oh, look, uh, economists, uh, the field of economics is very interesting. It's very important. How can we understand more of what they do and what the, what the role of economists and economics has been in the greater world? So it's a bit and I see that there are discussions between the sort of what's called an internalist and an externalist uh, perspective on the history of economics and that. They don't necessarily have to be uh, that different, which I think is true. But I think uh, there is this slight difference in the approach, whether you're coming from within the field yourself or if you're coming from outside of it. And I'm definitely coming from outside of it. Yeah, and so I understand you also saying that you're also interested in the influence that economics has outside economics as a discipline, correct? Mm, absolutely, yeah. yeah. Yeah, okay, so let's get to your thesis, and it's mostly about the 
first meeting of the Mont Pelerin Society. And I guess most listeners have heard of the Mont Pelerin Society, but can you briefly um, tell them what it is and especially who were the main protagonists during its first meeting, which is, your, which is what your thesis is about? Absolutely, yes. So I've divided my thesis into two parts, one which uh, covers the sort of prehistory of the first meeting, which is, I started in 1920 and go up to 1947. And 1947 uh, was the first meeting. It was more of a conference than a meeting. So it lasted for 10 days, uh, first to the 10th of April, 1947. And so then in the second part of my thesis, I write in great detail about this first meeting. Uh, and it was not uh, intended to be called the Montpellier Society. It was... Uh, Uh, the process leading up to the founding was very much led by uh, Felix Hayek, uh, the Austrian economist, and he originally wanted to call it the Acton Tocqueville uh, Society. And on a, in a lecture he gave at Stanford University in uh, 1946, I think, uh, in America, he explained quite a lot about what his ideas uh, were for the society, which he then still thought would be called the Acton Tocqueville Society. And he called it that it would be an army of fighters for freedom, uh, is the term he used. And uh, he had been uh, circulating uh, ideas about forming a society of liberal uh, intellectuals uh, for quite some time, and he had been an active participant in the uh, Walter Lippmann Colloquium already in 1938. And um, I found the, in the Yale University archives, I found some interesting exchanges between Walter Lippmann and uh, Friedrich Hayek, Uh, because excerpts of uh, Lippmann's book uh, were published in England, where uh, Hayek worked uh, in the 1930s. And upon reading Lippmann, Hayek thought, oh, I must get in touch with this man uh, and uh, send him some of my uh, articles from the socialist calculation debates, especially. And then Lippmann responded to him that, of course, uh, I have read these articles very carefully before. Without them, I would not have been able to make the arguments I've been making. So already Walter Lippmann was inspired by Hayek uh, intellectually, and then Lippmann sent him a list of what he called true liberals, uh, the few true liberals known to him, he called them. And in many ways, um, a lot of those people ended up in the Lippmann Colloquium in 1938, and then uh, Hayek in some ways built on that uh, earlier attempt to, uh, to gather liberal intellectuals. And in 1947, he was able to do so Uh, many people were not very happy with the suggestion of Acton Tocqueville. Many different names uh, were suggested. Someone suggested, how about just the Mont Pelerin Society, since they were gathered in a place called Mont Pelerin, to which I think it was uh, Karl Popper who said, well, Mont Pelerin Society, that's just, uh, that's just meaningless. It doesn't mean anything. <laughs> And that's pretty much the last uh, entry, uh, minutes from the founding meeting. And that's what they ended up calling themselves. But for you, the place is quite... Um of quite some significance, not meaningless at all. Absolutely not, no. And I think, I mean, Hayek had the, with all this funding he was able to get from the Luno Foundation, which was, this is after he had published The Road to Serfdom in 1944, and he uh, he traveled to America, uh, which was a place where the book uh, had great success. Uh, he spoke, went on speaking tours all over the country, And uh, this, uh, I'm sorry, it was Luno from the Volcker Foundation, of course, I'm mixing, sorry. Uh, the Volcker Foundation offered Hayek some money, both for him to have a secretary so that he, uh, at the LSE, so that he would have more time to devote himself to his uh, sort of political project of gathering what he referred to as true liberals uh, in this uh, organization. And in letters there, he said he would very much like for the meeting 
since he wanted a strong American contingent, he was very keen on it to be in what he called neutral ground, especially Switzerland. And um, I read a bit about the fact that it ended up in Switzerland and uh, William Rappard, who was, uh, was actually given the honor of opening the meeting, uh, who was based in Geneva. He was a Swiss national, although he was born in the U.S. He very much saw Switzerland as a sort of model society, and so too did uh, Wilhelm Röpke, who was uh, also an important player. And they did, uh, did some excursions during the, um, during the conference. They went to Schitz, uh, where they had the Bundesbrief, which is the sort of um, Swiss constitution from the 13th century, on display. Uh, and the idea of Switzerland uh, as a sort of almost a utopia with land-holding uh, families with a sort of a close local democracy in a federation with a very limited central power uh, was something they many of them looked up to as an ideal for the modern world. Yeah. Before we get into all the details of your thesis, a brief question ahead. There has been quite some literature and research on the Montpellerin society and the history of neoliberalism. What did you think you could add to the existing research by writing a thesis about it? And did you have access to unused materials or did you use the method that hasn't been used before? Maybe you can elaborate a bit on that. Yes, it is true that there has been quite some work on, on early neoliberalism and on the Montpellerin society. And I uh, think that what I, what I tried to uh, do is to It's, these are obviously very politically contentious questions, seeing how the Montpellier Society is a political organization. It still exists to this day. And the, the previous work is in some ways divided into two quite different camps. Within the, there's the sort of official history of the history of the Montpellier Society, which in uh, many ways is quite sort of hagiographic and presents this as a sort of people who loved freedom more than anything and who sort of saved the world from totalitarianism, etc. and so on, which is very much their own history of being repeated. And then you have more, more very critical histories, uh, which uh, are often, I find, based on what seems to be a bit of a misunderstanding, that neoliberalism was a restatement of laissez-faire liberalism, which, which is the thesis that have been argued against uh, previously, and the argument I'm continuing to show that this was definitely not laissez-faire, although they try to build on laissez-faire and to renew uh, the project of a sort of right-wing liberalism. It was very much an active project to dismiss the ideal of laissez-faire and find ways to use the state in a liberal society. And as far as uh, methods go, I uh, had access to the minutes themselves from the meeting. And I also met with Dorothy Hahn, uh, who was a very young lady at the time. Uh, who was a student of Hayek's at the London School of Economics and who was chosen by him to be his uh, secretary uh, and who travelled with Hayek to Montpellier and who actually was the person who then wrote the minutes. Uh, so I interviewed her and I tried to approach intellectual history with using uh, some tools from what's known as micro-history, uh, uh, which basically means to uh, zoom in very, very closely on small events and sort of find out all the details of something and then put that into context and zoom in and out between the small event and the larger context of which it takes part. Uh, and I try to use those tools as a way of doing uh, intellectual history and what's in some ways sometimes known as Cambridge School. And the idea of that 
you always have to put ideas into context to contextualize uh, the ideas. And then the question is, well, what does that, what does it actually mean to put ideas into context? And I've tried to use these tools of microhistory to an extent to see if that would uh, uh, would uh, help us in contextualizing these ideas instead of seeing them as sort of abstract ideas about markets and society and economics and so on and try to judge them against others, etc. Sort of try to see where these ideas come from and what other ideas were they arguing against? What's their uh, place in time, so to speak? Yeah, the, the moment we, we probably get closest to them is when they're peeling origins. Can you explain why that was so significant for you? Well, I thought it was very interesting when I talked to Mrs. Uh, Han, Dorothy, she had this very, um, very long time ago, it was almost 70 years ago. She had a very uh, vivid memory of them having lunch at the host. Was, there was, uh, the event was held at a place called the Hotel du Parc, uh, which, so I, I traveled there actually to see what it's like. And it's, <laughs> it, it was a very interesting experience. I wrote an article about it for uh, The Baffler, an American magazine. So the hotel is now, has, was for a while being turned into very, very, very exclusive, uh, luxurious apartments, sort of fully serviced apartments, which I've learned is something sort of in between an apartment and a hotel. So it, it, they are apartments, but they would also have room service and all the things that you would have in a luxurious hotel. But after the financial crisis, the company who took over this place and spent a lot of money trying to turn it into these very, very exclusive apartments it was meant to be for sort of the main sort of oligarchs of Saudi Arabia and Russia and whatnot with wanting to get Swiss passports, etc. Their market had somehow uh, had somehow not gone exactly the way they had hoped, so the whole company had gone bankrupt and uh, were apparently in some lawsuits, and it was a bit complicated. I didn't get all the details, but I was still shown around uh, the place by the the current owner of this now more or less defunct company. And even in 1947, this was a very sort of fancy hotel, and Dorothy, who was from, I guess, more or less humble backgrounds in London. And obviously this was just after the war and it had been a very difficult time in London during the Blitz and so on. And she found this place to be lavish and incredibly luxurious. And uh, she was a young girl too. And at lunch one day, uh, they were given oranges for dessert and Dorothy had never seen or had never actually eaten an orange before in her life, she told me. And so she was, very unsure what to do with it, which something caused her very caused her great embarrassment at the time. She was sitting next to Hayek, and Hayek kindly offered to peel the orange for her. And this was a moment that stuck out in her imagination, Hayek peeling her the orange. And I think it says a lot about uh, the time, of course, 1947, that actually an or seeing an orange in Europe for an English girl uh, was a great event and something she'd never seen before and actually didn't know what to do with, uh, which says something of the, the time this meeting was held in all the um, suffering and hardships, and it was still a time of famine in uh, many places in Europe, I think Sweden and Switzerland, after there was a sort of a famine in 1947, where Switzerland and Sweden were amongst the two few countries where there were not food shortages at the time. So it was a very, very difficult time. Uh, but it also, of course, says something about this group of people and the, uh, the kind of funding uh, they had access to and the kind of uh, privileged position in society uh, they came from. So this image of Hayek peeling the orange, I think, tells us quite a few things about this meeting in 1947 and the project uh, that was ongoing. 
Yeah, great. Um, let's zoom out then. And um, I think one of the major arguments in your thesis is that of the dual argument. I think you alluded to it already a little bit in the sense that you place neoliberalism far away from laissez-faire liberalism and uh, equally far away from the planning uh, ideologies that were at the time prevalent on the left. So uh, can you explain to us what you um, what the dual argument is to you and how it helps to get a grip on neoliberalism? Uh, I think because I, I came into uh, neoliberalism through, I guess, a bit of a roundabout way that I, when I studied my master's thesis, I wrote about the concept of totalitarianism, uh, theories of totalitarianism and the idea that sort of that Nazism and fascism uh, on one side and communism and socialism were uh, two sides of the same coin almost, or expressions of the same uh, sort of ideology or movement. And I wrote about a German sociologist called uh, Franz Borkenau, who was one of the first people to uh, to use this term in this way. Uh, and then when I wanted to move on to a PhD, I found that uh, the aspect of the sort of theory of totalitarianism, which I found most interesting, was the economic aspect, uh, which was a bit sort of understated in most theories of totalitarianism that are famous, like Hannah Arendt, for instance, but it sort of lingers on the surface, the idea that uh, government uh, control of the economy or government, even government interference in the economy is something that uh, totalitarian regimes, as they were called, of both the left and the right had in common, and the idea that this sort of government interference or government control is what leads to totalitarianism. I wanted to investigate this idea much closer, much more closely, and that's why I found this idea in many ways comes from uh, this group of people who uh, met in 1938, where they more or less agreed to call themselves neoliberals, and who uh, who later founded the Montpellier Society. So I wanted to look at this idea that uh, I found that this is actually a founding element of neoliberalism: is the idea that government uh, interference in the economy leads to total dictatorships. So I want to look into that more closely, but reading these people's work, and I, of course, like most people, I uh, would say had the idea that so neoliberalism was about getting the state out of the economy. But reading these works, of course, found that that's not necessarily what they're saying. So that's how I, uh, that's how I came up with the concept of a dual argument, that in a sense, they're saying two things at the same time. They were saying uh, that the movement towards what they call totalitarianism definitely came from governments, they would say, interfering in the economy of the state, uh, interfering with market mechanisms. That's a very, very strong argument that you can find in almost all, all of the early neoliberals. But at the same time, they're also saying, they're also arguing a bit less, a bit more understated, they're arguing against the old-fashioned ideals of laissez-faire. Whereas you would think, you would think that someone saying that uh, government interference in the economy leading to totalitarianism, they would say, well, then, Surely the government should stay away from the economy, but that's not actually what they're saying. They're trying to square that with a different argument, which is the idea that the fair, uh, the sort of almost not having a policy at all, those political ideals are not enough in the time in which they find themselves, where they, they according to their ideas, everything's going in the wrong direction. And so to just sort of sit back and let it, and, uh, let it happen is not an option. So they have to come up with a much stronger policy and almost all of them, uh, with the exception of Mises, I would say, we can talk more about that later, they actually 
quite explicitly disavow the ideals of laissez-faire liberalism and they try to think of ways in which they can use the state without interfering with the market mechanism. And I would say this is sort of main tension, almost the starting point of neoliberal ideology. And what would be some of the examples then that they would see as a important functions of the state as opposed to laissez-faire liberalism? Yeah, so that, I mean, and that's, that's how uh, I was saying that it's quite understated in their published work, uh, the degree to which they disavow laissez-faire liberalism. But in the minutes of the meeting, uh, sort of internal meeting, it's very clear, it's very strong, and Hayek explicitly uh, phrases the whole the introduction to the meeting and the first session that this is what we're here to do, is to discuss how we can use the state for what he calls liberal ends. He refers to it as, uh, in uh, The Road to Serfdom, he refers to it as planning for competition. So the idea being that economic planning shouldn't be something that usurps the mechanisms of markets and competition, but you should somehow find a way to plan for competition. And that's, of course, uh, lies very much in the legal structure of market society. But there are all kinds of ways in which this sort of opens up a door for what I would call a sort of right-wing liberal, uh, because they are they're very pro-Catholic, to put it that way. But to still uh, think of ways in which the state can be in the service of the market economy. So at the time they're writing this, they feel like states are something that's being used to uh, take over from the mechanisms of market. You describe planning and competition as a duality, that they were considering that as a duality. Can you um, elaborate on how they the early neoliberals conceptualize this duality of planning and competition? So I think the, the thing that especially Hayek, who is the main organizational, what we call a primus mutter in Norwegian, which I'm sure is a Latin phrase, so it probably makes sense in other languages too, is the main sort of organizational force of the non-power society, but it's also, you could argue, the main intellectual force. And he's uh, trying and he's sort of building on others in many ways. Uh, as all intellectuals always are, but he's trying to say that the question here is not whether or not we have the state to have, to have a state at all, but whether we have a, a regime of economic planning or whether we have a regime of, uh, of a competitive order of uh, competition. And this, uh, this is the reason I start the, the story in 1920 with the uh, beginning of the socialist calculation debates, because that's where what's known as the knowledge argument uh, eventually arises in the ways uh, Hayek built on Mises' uh, interventions in the socialist calculation debates. He, he calls it competition as a discovery procedure. So the idea that what you are uh, planning for, what an economic planner would be planning for, it cannot fully be known to the planner is something uh, that arises through the, the process of competition. These are very interesting ideas, very interesting arguments that are sort of form the backbone of what's later called Hayekian uh, economics by some. And I think, I think that, uh, and I show also in the, in the different correspondence, et cetera, that all these different neoliberals have come from different schools, uh, all Austrians, Ordo liberals, English liberals, there's Walter Lippmann uh, from the US, there's what some people call the first generation of Chicago school, uh, Frank Knight, uh, Henry Simons. 
they all have very different ideas about a lot of things, but you can see that they all refer to the Austrian position in the socialist calculation debate as the starting point for the idea that you can use the state to build a competitive order in various ways. And that's a, a program or a process that Hayek wants to start at the first 1947 meeting. And as you can see from the, from the debates in the meeting, they don't necessarily get a lot further in those debates. Uh, I see that some have argued that uh, what's called a free market study, which was then started in at Chicago some years later, is, can then be seen as a way in which that project continues and the debates continue uh, after 1947. Since you mentioned the socialist calculation debates and in your thesis you write not debate but debates, um, can you briefly, uh, I mean we had talked about this before on this podcast, but can you briefly um, Tell our listeners what they were, what they were discussing, or what they were about, and how this then, how these debates played out later in the early thinking of the. I mean, you alluded to it already, but how they took it on from there to to more polar. Yeah, I think. I mean, I think what what and the reason why uh, I sort of start the prehistory in 1920 and with the socialist calculation debates, which was such with Mises' response to Otto Neurath, who had a sort of scheme or how a socialized economy would work with calculating in Natura, etc. And Mises responds to that uh, by saying uh, in different ways that you have to have private ownership of production for economic calculation to be in any way rational. And then Hayek builds on that, develops the knowledge argument. Some there are, I'm not trying to take a sort of stand here, but there, there are different accounts as to how much Hayek builds on Mises. Uh, or not in developing the knowledge argument. You could argue that some of the aspects of seeing the market as as what I, what I call the, the mediator of modernity, the, the sort of mediating device that can make a modern society work. I developed that idea, but you could also say that it's present at least uh, in Mises. But either way, I think this shows very clearly that uh, neoliberalism can be seen very much as a response to the idea of socialism, to the idea of an economy with uh, common ownership, which is, of course, a huge challenge to the liberal idea of private property and capitalism. And this is what uh, the neoliberals are responding to. Uh, and this is how they develop their own ideas of the market and their own uh, ideology of neoliberalism, and which, of course, builds on previous liberalisms in a variety of ways, but meets a new challenge and is develop in a new direction because of the challenges it meets. And I think this is in many ways what it means to put uh, ideas into context. Yeah, so about that ideas into context, we recently had Pete Becky on the program who had written a biography of, uh, of Hayek or an intellectual biography of Hayek. And he made, um, to me at least, a surprising argument in that book in which he argued very much that the neoclassical notion of competition um, which is very prominent in these uh, socialist calculation debates, was a kind of aberration. So it's a kind of engineering view of the problem of allocation of scarce resources that is not present in the 19th century. And so he presented the Austrians very much as um, sort of restating an older position, an older 19th century position. And um, he tried to regard the, the sort of neoclassical vision in which it very much becomes a calculation problem and an allocation problem as an as an aberration. And and that would, of course, change the context quite a bit, right? Because then 
we wouldn't necessarily speak so much of, of, a, of a break with the neoliberals, but more a continuation of an older liberalism. Do you have any, any um, views or thoughts on that perspective? Yeah, I, mean, I, I haven't uh, been able to read, read Pete Butke's uh, new book, but I mean, as I said, of course, there are always continuities uh, in intellectual history, and it's not like these ideas come out of thin air. And I, for one, have been I've been reading up for a while. I was uh, uh, writing a review of a big book by Anwar Sheikh, which in which he expounds what he calls the classical view of competition. Of course, he puts a very Marxist twist on that. Uh, but it's a similar, you can see that there's a similar idea in Austrian thought about competition as a very unruly, turbulent process, but out of which some sort of order still uh, emerges. Uh, and I think that's very interesting. But I do think that through uh, the socialist calculation debates, meeting the new challenge of socialism, markets do take on a new view for the neoliberal, a new, um, a new meaning for the neoliberals as the, uh, not a site of exchange necessarily, but as the site of social mediation in a modern intertwined society. And I, and I impose this in my analysis, I impose the category of uh, modern society. It's not a phrase they use themselves very much, something I impose. So I, I instead of, I mean, the concept of uh, modernity or the category of modern society, and Hayek used it later in life, uh, so I think he's sort of later in life, he comes to think, well, that's sort of what I was doing here. I was trying to say how is a modern society different from traditional society. And uh, the category of modern society is a very sort of slippery uh, sociological concept by all means. And when, when, does, it, when does it start? And start it, it's very unclear. But if you want to break it down into smaller pieces, you could say that the two main things that are happening around the time of the uh, socialist calculation debates that you can call modern developments are first the intertwinedness, the economic intertwinedness of a whole, a whole, a whole world society that's somehow intertwined. That you have that uh, the actions of people in one place will uh, affect people that they can't know, which is a very different thing from that very different social order than a traditional social order. And the second thing that's happening is, of course, the rise of democracy with uh, universal suffrage, which is almost a brand new thing. Uh, in the interwar years. And met with that challenge, I think we could say that the idea of what a market really is takes on a new meaning for neoliberals, because even though they're building on past ideas about markets, uh, going back to Adam Smith and Bernard Mandeville, of course, it takes on a somewhat different meaning as the way in which a modern intertwined society can actually be coordinated and even work and it's and that is we can talk more about opposed to of course the idea of democratic deliberation somehow coordinating a modern society and i think that's something that's happened with the view of what the market is which i would argue is new at the time and i i try to put a very broad view on neoliberalism saying that that's that's what neoliberalism is about it's about making markets the mediators of modernity saying that the modern society, which is somehow democratic, has democratic aspirations, and which is economically intertwined, global, it has to be based on the mechanisms of markets and competition. To just stick with this, and this is, of course, most economists today still conceptualize the market as a place of exchange, but you, you have used the term markets as mediators of modernity. How does that actually work for them? How do markets mediate 
what what role do they play? How does that work for them? What which mechanisms do they see there? Well, I think the idea is that uh, the knowledge about society, what's to plan for, uh, how to organize society, what what to produce, obviously, but but also knowledge in a, in a more abstract way too about uh, who we are and what we're doing in the world that arises through our interactions with each other in the market. And that indicates that you can't sort of decide that through some sort of committee, be it democratic or, or not, and you can't really plan society because the information needed for that arises through the market mechanism which is then goes, I think, goes past exchange. Yeah, so, so, so I think this is a very interesting point, right? Because here you are really getting at, I think, how they are different from many other uh, thinkers about, about the 20th century or about modernity, if you like, in the sense that they say that one expresses one's preferences, but not merely one's preferences, but one also forms one's identity and one gets together with others on the market. And... Of course, in other political philosophies, democratic institutions or civil society organizations are much more are given much more prominence in the idea of what forms somebody's identity or how they associate with others. Is that correct? Exactly. Yeah. And I, I think that what Hayek comes to much later in life when he when he actively uses this distinction between traditional and modern societies. And he says that, uh, I mean, some criticism later of uh, what's believed to be neoliberal policies is criticism of the idea of homo economicus and the, and the idea that everyone's only, uh, only pursuing their own self-interest and self-gain, etc. And Hayek says uh, later in an article from 1983, I think it is, that of course people are not only selfish. Uh, Hayek knows that too. <laughs> um, people have all kinds of other motivations. But in order for a market to work, uh, people have to learn how to behave as market actors within the market structures. And then all kinds of self-interest and these things is something he thinks should be left to uh, uh, the family and sort of smaller social groups, which are more similar to how people live in traditional societies. But in a modern intertwined societies, for them to work, people have to uh, operate in market as market actors, and that indicates that they also somehow have to learn to be market actors in the right way. So for a modern society, it seems that many of those early neoliberals thought that the market would be more important than democracy, at least that is what I got from reading your thesis. So you emphasize the anti-democratic strand of um, the early neoliberals. Can you say something on that tension or maybe their anti-democratic stance? Yes, and I think, and I mean, um, the skepticism of democracy within liberal thought is not something the neoliberals invent at all, you could say. It's, it's a sort of, uh, it's one of the starting points of liberalism is the critique, is uh, liberalism post the French Revolution is a critique of the Jacobins and the, the violence in the revo revolutionary period and the idea that democracy has to be controlled, actually. Democracy has to be a serious checks on democracy. And I write about also when they were in Montpellier, they went to this Chateau Coupé, where um, uh, Madame de Stael uh, and uh, especially Benjamin Constant, from where Benjamin Constant wrote some of his most famous works, for instance, uh, separating between the liberty of the 
ancient and that of the moderns, where he claims that the political freedom for ancients, which then he refers to uh, the Greeks and the Romans, uh, had to do with political participation. Whereas for uh, people in the modern world, freedom is actually freedom from politics and not having politics and uh, what is then becoming a democracy, because this is the, in the 19th century, not having democracy and politics infringe on your life. So it's a, it's a radical sort of reversal of what political freedom actually means. And it has to do with limiting the reach of democracy. And, and this has to do especially with, with who gets to vote, of course, with suffrage and with what the reach of democracy actually is. And this is a strong liberal tradition of the 19th century that the neoliberals very much build on. And they, I think that their conception of the market as the place in which, uh, as the mediators of modernity, as the way in which modern society is organized, that is their modern way of building on that tradition. And of course, many people were were critical and skeptical of democracy in the interwar years, but but I think the neoliberal position is it's it's sort of it's more than just looking out the window saying oh this isn't working very well this is very chaotic and complicated. I mean their theory it, they they have a serious theory about how democracy understood as ru actual rule of the people cannot possibly work in a modern society. So I think that's a very very important aspect of early neoliberalism. Yeah, let me pick up on that because I'm, to be fully honest, not quite convinced that this is actually their uniform sentiment. And, and for that reason, I think it's interesting that you sit, situate them so heavily in Switzerland, right? Because Switzerland also poses an alternative model of modernity, if you like, right? It stayed extremely federalist, so much so that other people feel it's kind of an island of federalism uh, in, a, in a global world almost, right, uh, sort of uh, symbolized perhaps by the fact that they still haven't joined the European Union. But in uh, Wilhelm Rupke's thought, you also find this sort of emphasis on on smallness. There's even almost a sort of smallest beautiful strand in his in his way of thinking. And that is quite different from thinkers who think about global markets and global capital flows. I'm sure you've read Quinn Slobodian's recent book, right, where he very much emphasizes the international dimension of neoliberalism. So would you also agree that there's a kind of a tension between some of the neoliberals who feel drawn to a kind of local self-governance, a federalist uh, society versus those who think very much about an international order of markets? Absolutely, that's definitely true. And I think again, some of the order liberals are among the more conservative, in that sense, very interested in this. Many very interesting discussion during the meeting on agricultural policies how to make, and which is in a sense, it's where this sort of one neoliberal idea of sort of a world of economic signals uh, passing through market mechanisms, which is cross transnational, crossing all borders, et cetera, meets this uh, more old fashioned idea of a sort of local society in which um, has their own little, little business. And in, because in uh, agriculture, of course, there are seasons and nature that you have to relate to, which is doesn't necessarily fit in fit into the abstract economic uh, theorizing, and so uh, Röpke, for instance, is one of those in that meeting who said there has to be some sort of insurance policy or some sort of really some sort of market interference to protect farmers and to protect the farming way of life against the gyrations of a market economy, and that's the sort of tension that we definitely find. But I think the thing that unites them in a sense and unites the, the sort of 
idealization of Swiss federalism and idealization of the of the view of democracy as a sort of thing that's very old and it's developed very slowly and organically in the sort of Burkean sense, which also means that it's very hard to change it, that it's set up by, you, I could argue, a few sort of privileged families, a few privileged views, and it's very hard for others to come into that form of, and you could call it democracy because it relates to constitutions and uh, voting, etc. but it's also, and I write a little bit about this and how in Switzerland at the time, of course, women didn't have the right to vote. And uh, William Rappert even uh, defended that idea at the time. Uh, and you could say that that view comes together with a globalist view that Quint Slobodian writes about because it's the idea that mother society has to be still, even though it's a democracy, it has to be a very, very limited democracy in which it's, uh, there are very clear limits as to what normal people voting can actually uh, change. And I I want to bring out this again because um, the idea of democracy, popular democracy, with full universal suffrage, which we now think of as completely natural, I mean, it is a highly revolutionary idea that is rather new at the time. And of course, the big threat is that uh, the majority of people not being property holders will somehow give democracy the power to actually change the social hierarchies significantly through democracy. The big threat to the liberal capitalist order. And that's, the, I would say, the threat that uh, neoliberalism is in anyone's reaction to. And that's building on responding to that threat is how the ideas of markets and competition uh, are brought out. And they're not necessarily brand new ideas, but they're parts and bits of old ideas that are mobilized against a new threat in a new context. And that's how neoliberalism arises. Yeah, thanks, Ola. So I want to go back to something you said, but also look forward. Neoliberalism, many people argue, is still with us. And I think there's an interesting tension in your thesis, uh, but also other people writing about neoliberalism, in the sense that right, you clearly exclude Mises from the neoliberal camp. You say he's an old-fashioned, laissez-faire liberal um, by some of the neoliberals, he's called a paleoliberal, as, as you know, um, somebody who's uh, nearly extinct. But on the other hand, there's a sense in which people feel that he is um, perhaps the hidden agenda of neoliberalism. So even though they compromised in 1947 and were willing to accept state intervention, even argued that the state had to play an active role, the way that neoliberalism played out or the way that perhaps the ideology played out well, um, actually had much to do with Mises' political agenda and not merely with that, the new program that the neoliberals proposed. Do you have any, any views on this? Well, I think that uh, Mises was very important and he obviously got, got to come to the meeting, but as you can see from my thesis and from discussion, he, he did not contribute very constructively. He instead sort of derailed most of the debates by, by expounding these sorts of uh, laissez-faire views that they were trying to move beyond. But there were also sort of, I mean, the whole conference was split in many ways, and Mises was the sort of far right of the conference, uh, ruining lots of the debates by being lots of fair. But you also had a sort of almost a left wing of uh, people like Maurice Allais, uh, the Swede uh, Herbert Kingston, the Dane Carl Iversen, who were, who were much more taken by Keynesian ideas uh, at the time. And these people, you could see, they sort of disappear 
from the organization, from the sort of neoliberal imaginary or the neoliberal organization, whereas Mises very much stays, even though he's so sort of, I would definitely agree, out of tune, out of sync with the others. But I guess the fact that he sort of, he starts the socialist calculation debate, so to speak, which I try to show are a very, very important sort of founding moment for this way of thinking about the modern world and about liberalism. With, this means he becomes a sort of godfather in one sense for the movement. And so he he's obviously allowed to stay, so to speak. And then and we, I don't think we should equate neoliberalism with uh, Austrian economics, the other strands. And this goes back also to the question of the relationship between neoclassical economics and uh, neoliberalism. And where Hayek became very critical of neoclassical economics and seeing it as a vehicle for socialism almost, people, the Chicago School economists very much stayed within, within neoclassical economics and were able to influence neoclassical economics significantly from the inside with ideas you could argue were neoliberal. And uh, of course, Friedman was very far from Mises in very many ways, uh, but he also, uh, he started using the phrase laissez-faire positively, for instance, to describe himself. And I think that's sort of um, dishonest almost, or at least not very uh, illuminating of the project uh, in which Friedman was engaged. But it does say something about this sort of tensions between neoliberalism and laissez-faire, uh, that it was definitely an explicit attack on laissez-faire and trying to move beyond laissez-faire, but it was done so in order to save what they thought were some of the principles of laissez-faire, namely the idea of a free economy, so to speak. So there's a tension in there, I think, that can't just completely be dismissed as if it has nothing to do with laissez-faire, because it very much has a lot to do with it. But it's also a big mistake to say that it was just a restatement of laissez-faire, if that answers the question at all. Yeah, so, so just one one final follow-up on, on Friedman, I, I, I suppose. And can you perhaps illustrate what makes him different from a 19th century laissez-faire liberal or from Mises? So, so in what sense is he still a neoliberal in the sense that you describe these people in in, uh, in 47? Yeah, so I think uh, Friedman is still uh, a neoliberal because his sort of baseline view uh, is something you can find at the uh, at the first Montpellier and Society meeting, namely the idea that a modern society has to be built on the mechanisms of markets and has to we have to, what, what the role of economists and whomever have to be in the modern world is to try to create a competitive order. And there are many ways in which you could go about to try and do that. And I think the Chicago School way and the various branches of that is one way. So I'm currently working on a book project uh, on uh, the history of neoliberalism in Norway and the ways in which, in, with the ways in which neoliberal ideas have influenced uh, Norwegian politics. And then if we're in the thesis, I, in a sense, I make life very easy for myself by just saying, well, these are these thinkers at the time and these were their ideas, period. But in this book I'm working on now, I'm trying to also say something about how they may possibly have influenced actual policies much later. Uh, and then Friedman is a very important person. And I try to try to distinguish between a sort of neoliberalism as an ideology strand and neoliberalism as technocracy strand. And Friedman is in some way right in the middle because he's both a neoliberal ideologist and how he writes his uh, more popular works on capitalism and freedom, et cetera, and his TV series, all that stuff, which is all about how bad the state, uh, how bad government is and how markets are behind everything that's good in the world. But he also, of course, was a very important economist who influenced 
policymakers all over the world, policymakers, some of which were even even saw themselves as social democrats and used the tools of monetarism, uh, etc. in their uh, efforts to try to manage the economy, which was, of course, exactly what Hayek and the early neoliberals had warned against. So it, it's a very interesting and complex uh, story full of tensions, uh, which I think uh, very much goes for the neoliberal project as a whole, too. It's not just Austrian theory. There are many other strands of it, but somehow brought together in the Montpellerin society as a sort of political organization. Uh, but I think the moment of 1947 and the founding and the years before and the socialist calculation debate are very important uh, in understanding this as a very broad way of thinking about the modern world and how to build a competitive order based on market competition. Maybe to close the interview in your conclusion, you come back to the term neoliberalism and of course today neoliberalism is used by all kinds of people with very different meanings and it kind of means everything and nothing. Some use it to describe everything they don't like, others use it to describe stuff they like. But in your um, conclusion you actually say or, or write rather than see neoliberalism as a set of now outdated economic policies regarding deregulation and free markets. I argue that it should be seen as something closer to what Michel Foucault called a political rationality, a way of understanding society, politics and subjectivity, which is based on the original neoliberal conception of markets as mediators of modernity. So as I understand it, your thesis should also help us um, understand what neoliberalism really is and maybe get out of the muddle that today is surrounding the term, can you briefly elaborate on what you mean by that and how we can actually use the insights um, of your thesis in today's discussion on neoliberalism? Yeah, well, I'm trying to move one step further now with working on the very concrete context of uh, Norwegian politics uh, all the way up till the financial crisis in 2007 to see how you can use the term neoliberalism the way I understand it to Uh, make more sense of economic policies later. And of course, the most important step is to move away from the idea that neoliberalism is laissez-faire and neoliberalism has to do with removing the state almost somehow. And I think when you see it as a project to sort of anchor modernity in in uh, the mechanisms of markets, uh, it becomes very broad, which can be unhelpful if you want to sort of distinguish very clearly between who's a neoliberal and who's not a neoliberal. Etc. But I mean, I what I find fascinating about it is the extent to which I mean, I'm as I'm sure someone have been able to pick up. I'm I'm sort of politically on the left uh, myself, uh, but instead of just sort of decrying it as as, as a sort of evil conspiracy to uh, destroy the welfare state and take away uh, and take away the state somehow, to see their theories as ways, which obviously comes from You could see it as a form of reaction in many ways, of course, but to also see that there are their critique of planning and their critique of uh, economic organization and even deliberative uh, democracy obviously has some good points in it and very important. So to start it from there, because obviously democracy uh, is a difficult thing. Uh, sorry, guys, I sort of fell out of my own answer here. <laughs> No, let, let, let me let me help you. Uh, oh, so I, I've also recently been to a, a couple of workshops that try to study uh, neoliberalism in different countries. Mm. And in those conferences, there was even talk of a neoliberal welfare state. Mm. 
does that term also make sense to you? Um, is there a sense in which we can organize a welfare state along neoliberal lines? Well, I think that's what's happening in many places uh, at the moment. The, what, what's going on in Norway is, is uh, what's called, uh, it's, it's making the welfare state into a side of competition. So it's still paid for by, by tax money and somehow sort of controlled, and then this is the main problem, I suppose, by the public. But there are uh, capitalist companies uh, making sort of bids and tenders to uh, to run various social services like old people's homes, uh, like kindergartens, etc. And then they win. So instead of the public actually running the welfare state uh, through itself, it uses tax money to pay profit-seeking companies to run the services for them, based on the idea that they would be that would be more efficient because of the mechanisms of markets and competition. And I think this is a development which definitely can be understood through the prism of neoliberalism. Not that necessarily Hayek would advocate such a thing at all, but I think it's helpful to look at his theories uh, in order to understand why and how this is happening at this time. Yeah, and that would relate then to something like a school voucher system that uh, Friedman argued for before, right? Absolutely. Which is also a welfare state provision of education or the right to education, but then leads to competition on the other end. Yes, <laughs> I don't have anything to yeah. add. No, okay. Thank you very much. Yes, thank you, Ola. Thank you, guys. I'm a little bit uh, rusty on this, but I hope uh, I was able to deliver some good content for your podcast. Thank you for listening. We hope you enjoyed this episode enough to come back for more. The featured music is called Knowing Nothing by Mid-Air Machine and our intro features Paul Krugman at his Nobel Prize banquet speech in 2008. Thank you to Nobel Media AB for giving us the permission to use the audio. Check out our website cetrusneverparabus.net for more information. Follow us on Twitter cetrusnparabus and listen to more episodes on iTunes or your favourite podcast app.